Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. brings us to step five, uh, which may feel out of place, uh, to mourn the wrongness of what has happened and receive God's comfort. Uh, The question that I would raise here is, you know, God, can we rest on this journey? Uh, Sometimes we, we ask, what are we supposed to do with all that bad news we got in step four? I mean, we're supposed to, we're supposed to fix it, right? Uh, You know, we should we should make it better. We should spin it positive. We should do that fast. Uh, if we can use the Bible, all the better, because then, you know, I might actually believe what we're saying. I don't really think, well, but I might. And my picture of that is we become kind of a really mean orthodontist. You know, who knows what our teeth are supposed to look like and is not willing to let it take two years. They want to do it in two months. So they put those little brackets on there and they screech those bad wires hard. Uh, And we're going to get those teeth where they need to be real quick. Is that nice? No. Is that the way God would walk us on this kind of journey? No. I think there is a very appropriate sense in which as we acknowledge the history and realness of our experience, we see the impact that it's had. We, we see the story that makes it even more painful and we begin to peel that, that story off so that we're actually looking at the experience for what it is. That it's right for us to take a moment and just mourn that. And say, there's some losses. There's some pain then I am going to emotionally agree with God about this experience. And when God sees the brokenness that sin has caused in our world, not just our sin, but living in a broken world and all of that, I think one of God's responses is to weep. And that when we say, God, this is hard, He says, yeah. One of the most hope-giving statements in Scripture is when God comes to Moses just at the beginning of the Exodus narrative. And what was the first thing that God said to Moses? I have heard the cries of my people. You know they had to be wondering. They've been praying for 400 years of slavery. Is God there? Is he listening? God says, I heard the cries of my people. And so in this step, we're not arguing with God. We're agreeing with Him about the impact of suffering. And I think it's through mourning uh, our suffering that we give ourselves permission to quit faking being strong so that we can embrace God's strength for us. Until we mourn, 
we tend to just try harder and do more. There's a sense in which mourning is that time when we take a breath and we say, God, we've come to the end of ourself. You know, there's times when if it's a sin struggle, we come to the end of ourselves and that's kind of brokenness and repentance. But there's a time in the midst of, say, you know, grief uh, might be a good parallel where we just come to the end of ourselves in the morning and say, God, we can't do this. And we begin to rely on His strength in the midst of that. That's what we're talking about here. Now we ask the question, what are we mourning? Um, it, you know, there's nothing to bury. If we sent a, a funeral invitation, we wouldn't know whose name to put on it. There's, there's no, what are we mourning? I'll give us several things that I think we're mourning. One is the level of trust that we have for our own emotions. It, you know, what we've mentioned already, we have a fierce loyalty to our emotions. Think about it. Have you ever been angry and thought you were wrong? I haven't. We have a fierce loyalty to our emotions. And when we begin to realize that our emotions are not always honest with us, that, that's a loss. We lose our own sense of invincibility. I mean, there's times that we get that as we just get older and we realize we don't quite bounce back like we used to. Uh, that happens to me after every baseball practice that I coach. I get out there, I put a whistle around my neck, I think I'm 13 again. I am ready to go like a young man. I wake up in the morning, the whistle is no longer around my neck, and I realize I'm old. And that, that sense of invincibility is gone. And when I begin to realize I don't, I don't bounce back from particular emotions or experiences, uh, that is something to be lost. Identity. We've talked about that several times. But one of the things that we often miss about grief and mourning is that sometimes we talk about grief as if it were primarily an emotional struggle. I don't think that's accurate. I think it's primarily a struggle of identity. Grief is a time when we ask the question, who am I now? If I outlive my wife, and there is a time when I grieve her loss, that will not just be a time of emotional sadness. It will be a time when, how do I introduce myself to people? How do I think of myself as a me instead of a we? There is so much of, not even from an idolatry standpoint, but of just kind of being one, that part of grieving is asking the question, who am I now? And so, it would be impossible to mourn without asking that question. Another thing that we have lost is our sense of proportionality. And I don't think we realize how valuable that is. In the midst of depression and anxiety, it's as if we live in a world of carnival mirrors where nothing ever seems quite the right size that it is. that with anxiety, everything feels big. Well, at least the bad things do, and the good things feel really small. And that loss of a sense of proportionality or 
that we can totally trust the way that we perceive things. That's part of what uh, we begin to mourn. And some of that is a good form of humility. Um, and some of it is, uh, is just a sadness that we, we wish that part of us was more trustworthy. Um, Ed Welch speaks to that a little bit. He says, All sufferers are tempted to believe that their suffering is unique. They've lost that sense of proportionality. There's, their experience is not like any other experience. This lie immediately renders all counsel irrelevant because no one can understand. No advice is applicable. The result is that the aloneness you already experience is now an established fact. And you are given ever more permission to despair. And again, another thing that we may mourn uh, is uh, the loss of friends. Uh, that's an unfortunate reality. Um, again, like we talked about before, sometimes that is, that is our fault. Um, in the withdrawal that comes with depression, we've withdrawn from our friends. And they tried to reach out and we just isolated ourselves and, and they lived their life because they kind of had to. It may be the stigma of the anxiety or depression or them just not knowing what to say or ask. And when we don't know what to say or ask, we tend to, to step away, whatever it is. But whichever way it goes, that, that is still something to be mourned. Now, I think there's an important distinction for us to take some time on here. In the midst of mourning, uh, there is kind of the, the evil twin, if you will, uh, that is wallowing or self-pity. Uh, Brian Boardman says, Satan is attracted to the inward-turning instinct of depression. Satan can use times of depression as an opportunity uh, for an all-out assault on our faith and confidence in God. He can use the dark night of the soul to cast doubt on the goodness and love of God. You know, in that sense, Satan is just as happy to use our suffering to destroy us as he is to use sin. He doesn't care. Either one, he is just as happy. Um, and so, as we go through this, I think it would be important for us to ask that, what is the difference between mourning and wallowing? And we realize they have a lot of things in common. Uh, I list them there. Both are triggered by uh, an undesired life circumstance. Both exist on the unpleasant end of the emotional spectrum. Both feel justified and logical in light of what's triggering them. Neither one of them does it feel like we're doing it. It feels like it's happening to us. Uh, both involve this high degree of mental repetition where we're playing things over and over again. Both are seeking to make sense out of life. Um, both shape the way that we think about the future and people and the past. Um, and, and we begin to see not mourning well really would impact the way that we experience depression and anxiety. But why do we take the time to say that these are parallels that, that are there for either mourning or wallowing? Because on that list, we don't know whether what we're experiencing is good or bad. We don't know if it's healthy or unhealthy. Um, we just know we're hurting. Um, and so let's draw some of those distinctions that would help us know if we were mourning or wallowing. 
Now, if there's perfectionists in the room, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know who you are. Let me tell you, the goal here is not to mourn perfectly. Okay? That's not the goal. Just mourn a little bit better. To be more aware of the moments when our instincts aren't serving us well. And so one of the differences, wallowing fears hope. Mourning trusts hope. You know, when somebody tries to uh, encourage you, how much do you argue with them in your head? I I can tell you, there's just times I don't want to feel good. And if you come along and try to encourage me, I may play nice just because I don't want to hear any more of the encouragement that you got to say. But in my head, I'm not listening to you. That's a pretty good indicator uh, that I am wallowing. Uh, I'm not mourning. Wallowing resents joy. Mourning longs for joy. Uh, resentment just has this way of flipping our values. Uh, if you think about it, if somebody grew up in poverty and that's a point of significant hurt for them, then they oftentimes begin to resent being rich as if it were something bad. Uh, if somebody grew up where academics was hard, then those who are smart, they just don't have any common sense. They don't have what we have. Um, you know, I grew up in the country. We thought that way about city folk. Uh, now I am city folk, and that's a really conflicted existence there. Uh, but resentment tends to have a way of flipping our values, and when that happens, uh, then we are wallowing more than mourning. Wallowing is skeptical towards faith. Mourning listens to faith. So, uh, here's another way to think about that. Examine the way that you watch the news. When you watch the news, and it is a, uh, it's a program that shares your political ideologies, you listen to that program one way. When it's a program that you don't think shares your political ideologies, you listen to that another way. It's like me when I read books on counseling. If I read a book on counseling and I don't think this person shares my same kind of grounding presuppositions, I read that book one way. If I think they do agree with me, I read it another way. When we are wallowing, we listen to faith as if it were a, a news program or a book that did not share our core values. It wasn't agreeing with our story. When we are mourning, even if that story isn't the one that we're fully embracing, it is the one that we want and we listen to it with a greater open mind. Uh, wallowing resists being strong. Uh, mourning embraces strength. You know, it's kind of the difference between a marathon runner and somebody who is uh, up. Um, predator or a prey running from a predator. Both of them are exhausted. The marathon runner, as they are running, they view that as a sign of strength. And even if they are tired, there is a source of encouragement that says, this something good is coming from it. For the one running from the prey, it's just, I'm not dead yet and I'm about to be. Um, and, and which of those captures the way that you view that journey? The first four were intrapersonal. They were kind of in here. Uh, this last one is interpersonal. 
Wallowing avoids being known. Mourning invites community. And again, I'll say it again. One of my biggest hopes for this material is it just becomes an avenue where as a church and as a community, we are more effective at inviting people into our lives and entering into the lives of others um, because that is absolutely essential. So how do we mourn? Um, it, I'll give us a few suggestions here. Uh, and I'll admit, mourning will not be nearly as active or as voluntary as we want it to be. Uh, it won't be something that we master. Uh, but here are some things uh, that I think are an important part of mourning uh, in this stage in our journey. Realizing that mourning is not an event uh, that you can calendar. You need to allow yourself to be weak and cared for. You know what trust feels like when we haven't done it in a while? It feels like being out of control. And when so much about depression and anxiety is about trying to grasp control so that life feels less chaotic, and we begin to let go of that control enough that we could actually give ourselves the space to mourn what's going on, it's going to feel out of control. But that's what allows God and others to care for us. Don't feel rushed. Uh, rest in God's care before the next stage. View this aspect as a time when God is caring for you, not something you've got to get out of the way to get to the next point on the journey. You know, what does it mean to mourn? It means your goal is to assimilate steps one through three without the destructive foreground messages of step four. It's when you can look at the specific history and realness and the impact that that's had, and you strip uh, those destructive suffering story messages off of it, or at least put them to the background, and you can look at this and feel about it the way that God does, and say, you know, this is sad, this does need to be redeemed, and it's right for me to feel this way towards it. And to realize that sadness is not, <coughs> is not the final chapter. You know, a hopeful statement is that only those who are alive grieve. Uh, just by definition. The fact that you are at this stage in the journey means that this is not the final chapter. And one of the most important aspects of this not becoming a depressive suffering story is that where we are is not the final chapter. Uh, there is more to be written. There is hope. Now, uh, an important aspect, just because we're using step work um, that I think is important here, uh, is what Amy Simpson reminds us. She says, recovery ministries are not right uh, for most people with mental illness. And she would talk about depression and anxiety in that uh, context. The idea of recovery reinforces the message that we want to help you get over your problem so that you can be normal, fully functioning member of the community. Uh, this approach... Um, for issues that um, this approach is appropriate for issues that truly lend themselves to recovery, but it's not appropriate uh, for many forms of mental illness. 
And, and so again, as we do step work and that kind of stuff, it would be easy to say, okay, if we struggle with depression and anxiety, we need to come over here, we need to get this right, kind of do that in an isolation chamber, and then we can come out and live in community. No. Um, yeah, I, I don't think drawing a parallel between depression and anxiety uh, and something like addiction, where there are times when going through an intensive for sobriety is a very good and effective aspect, and recovery is a good mindset there. I don't think that's what fits best. Uh, in step seven, we'll talk about more of a, a replacement mindset for that. Uh, and I know I'm probably raising lots of questions in the area of how's he using the word of mental illness and what that's being talked about. If we start to unpack those definitions now, we'll get muddied down in our journey. And that's where I would again just reference um, the resource that we have on mental illness as a way of going, how do I think about that? And why are we using that language? And where is it helpful and where is it not? Uh, we, we address that uh, in that other resource. Um, we, we have a section here, uh, that's not helpful, uh, things not to say. Uh, I include that here. Uh, simply because we often hear them. Uh, if you Google um, stupid things to say at a funeral, uh, there is an unfortunately long list of things that will come up there. Uh, in this aspect, um, in the area of depression and anxiety, uh, that, that also happens. Um, I list several here that are collected by David Murray. Uh, I like his piece of advice. Uh, he says, the general rule uh, to those who listen, um, the general rule is that those who listen most and speak least will be the most useful to sufferers. Uh, again, the best piece of advice I got in all of my graduate studies of counseling, if you don't know what to say, ask more questions. Um, it saves us uh, a lot of headache and heartache. 